Well, good afternoon, all of you. Good to see you. Good to have us here. We have an event coming up this week. I warned you of last week. Fast of the fifth month is July 27th. This is the 22nd, so that only gives us five days left. Since I believe that's a Thursday. Yeah, Thursday uh, is the fast of the fifth month. <clears throat> in turning to read about it in Isaiah or Jeremiah 52, uh, I was going to review what the fast of the fifth month is about, and as I did so, I began to think back, and I had been thinking already of some things and how I felt uh, today, yesterday, and the day before, and what some of my feelings and thoughts have been, and I suddenly realized that they fit perfectly with this day. <laughs> We've been talking about a time of restitution, a time of renewal and restoration when God is going to turn things around and do them differently. And certainly, as we've seen over and over, uh, that is certainly in the Scriptures and it cannot be denied that it is there to happen. Meanwhile, where are we? Uh, that is the question. Let's go back to... Jeremiah 52. Well, we'll go to Jeremiah 52. I'm going to go to Hebrews 12 uh, once more. We've been over this countless times. But just as a reminder before we get into Jeremiah of where we are today. Uh, chapter 12 talks about God chastening and how we've not yet resisted unto blood against sin. Uh, goes through all that, and then he gives the example of Esau, and how he simply would not give up his attitude toward Jacob or toward God. And Paul warns us here not to let ourselves get into that kind of attitude. Because once we get upset, uptight, bitter, frustrated, it's hard to get over that. And it says that Esau sought repentance, tried to change his attitude with bitter tears. He cried and cried, and yet he could not turn loose. Once he realized, really, what Jacob had done to him with the birthright and all that, uh, he regretted that he had sold it so cheaply for a bowl of soup. And... It was such a bitter thing that he simply could not turn loose of it. He tried for years and years and never could. Uh, the Edomites today still hate Israel with a passion. Uh, the book of Obadiah is a prophecy of the end time. And it says the children of Eden will, Edom, will rise up over Jacob and help destroy Jacob and then be so happy and proud of themselves that they have brought this nation down. 
and God then is going to punish them, it isn't that we don't deserve being taken down. We most assuredly do. But uh, Edom is going to be right in the middle of it. It says there in Obadiah they'll be uh, involved in the financial centers in high places. And we have many people among in our government and in uh, finance and banks and so on who people consider to be Jews, but they're actually Edomites. They're not true Jews at all. But they're masquerading as Jews. And the Scripture says in a couple of places uh, that there are those who will claim to be Jews, but are not. And the Edomites are among those. So that hatred has come on down through the generations and still is there. It's ironic in a way that this nation, the nations of Israel, wherever they are on earth today, do not even recognize who they are. Uh, there are a few people here and there who understand where Israel is, but not very many, very, very few. And maybe even the Edomites don't understand who Israel is, but they hate us nonetheless. <laughs> that hate is still there, and to some degree among the top, they must have an idea of who we are. I mean, it's so simple. Look through a phone book someday. If you want to know where Israel is, uh, look through one in Hong Kong. Will you find any Israelite names there? <laughs> Not very many. Or Japan, or wherever. But you look in one in America, or in Western Europe, and you'll find Jacobs, Jacobson, Abrams, Abramson, on and on and on it goes. All kinds of names that touch the Bible, but not anywhere else. So, even though people don't know who they are, these prophecies still apply. I was just looking at something a preacher wrote in an article, and he started out by saying, uh, America is not Israel. America is not mentioned in the Bible prophecies at all. Now, here at the end time, when all these prophecies are coming to pass, how could it be that the lone superpower that has been would not even be mentioned? Uh, superpowers of the past are mentioned in the Bible, Babylon, Nineveh, so on, Assyria. Why wouldn't Israel be? Because he gives us a rundown in Genesis 49 of the things that would happen to Israel. And if you go through it and read it, you can place some of those nations relatively easily just by reading the description. Well, that's all I read. I don't read uh, religious stuff anyway. I don't listen to religious YouTube stuff. I don't want to be tainted by it. I didn't know that was a preacher until I got into the article and suddenly I realized, oh, this is a Protestant preacher, forget it. I just don't, I just don't go there. I don't want to be influenced at all by that stuff. But coming on down here in Hebrews 12, 
He says, don't be, verse 16, a profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. How you know that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Then he explains to the New Testament church, <clears throat> this was written to, by Paul, an apostle, the early New Testament church. So, we're not talking ancient Israel here. We're not talking anything but the end time church. Okay, that's the context. He's writing it to people in the church that Christ started in that day that exists even yet today. And I, I am leading up to identifying some things. Uh, verse 18, he says, For you are not come to the mountain that might be touched and that burned with fire or blackness and darkness and tempest. We're not at Sinai. He says, that's not what you're come to. That was long ago. And the sound of the trumpet and the voice of words, which voice that they heard entreated that the words should not be spoken to them anymore. Now, they didn't want to hear about God or His Word. He says, you're not come to those people. For they could not endure that which was commanded. <clears throat> and as so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. God enforced things back then upon those people. And yet, <clears throat> they remained hard-hearted and would not follow what God said. So Paul is saying, don't be like that. So terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. So even the leader who was a friend of God, close to God, was afraid. Now, what about us? What about the New Testament church? But you are come to Mount Zion... Now, he's going to give a whole lot of names of things and people here that we are come to. So, what it is, is a summary of all those Old Testament prophecies in saying, here is how they apply to the New Testament church. So, when you read those prophecies that were written long ago, but apply to today... Here he says, we are. The New Testament church is a composite of these things. Mount Zion in the Bible represents the New Testament church. So when you read prophecies about Zion and coming to Zion, you're reading about the New Testament church and even a physical location. <clears throat> and to the city of the living God. So we are coming not to the old Jerusalem, but the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. When we think of Jerusalem, we think of the city of the living God and that which is coming to us, for the most part. And to an innumerable company of angels, so God has the angels focused on the New Testament church, they are very, very much involved with us. 
and then to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. So here in talking about the heavenly Jerusalem, about Zion, in the same breath, same sentence, he mentions the church of the living God. It's all one and the same. You're talking about the same thing. Which are written in heaven. Who else is? Just the church of the living God. The one he started, wherever it is. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Alright, to God the Father, and to other members with whom we are brother, sister, father, mother, and so on. Uh, we're here as a family under God. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that is speaking, speaks better things than that of Abel. So he says, don't refuse him that speaks. So what he's doing is tying all those prophecies together here in Hebrews 12, comparing Esau to the New Testament church and what the attitude ought to be and not to let ourselves get into this bitterness that Esau had. So, I just wanted to remind us and read again all the things that are typical or symbols of the church today. So when we go back and read about them in the Old Testament, we know to apply them to the church, to ourselves. And not many people understand that. Now let's go back then to Jeremiah 52, uh, where it talks about this fast that is coming up on Thursday. Jeremiah 52. Now, he's talking in chapters 50 and 51 uh, in an end-time prophecy against Israel about how the Assyrian will come and people will flee to Zion, how there's going to be civil war within our country, uh, ruler violence in the land, ruler against ruler. Uh, he's talking about the country that is the hammer of the whole earth, he mentions. And there's no other nation on earth today, here at the end time, that you could call the hammer of the whole earth. We've hammered any and everybody we wanted to, and there's a couple we want to hammer right now, uh, Russia and China, and we're hammering around the edges, but we're kind of scared, and yet those people in Washington want us to attack Russia and be destroyed. That's what they want. That's what they're working toward. So Jeremiah 50 and 51 are very, very much end-time prophecies about the United States, as is Revelation 18. Uh, then we come to 52, and it has been talking about uh, the horrible things that happened to that nation and that city of Jerusalem way back then before Christ, in the days of Jeremiah. Now, these fasts that he's talking about in, Jer in Zechariah 8, that he says we're to keep, the fast of the fourth, the fifth, the seventh, and the tenth months, he goes through. And there were specific events that happened on each one of those days in history that God says to remember. 
people have thought, well, that's just, the Jews keep that. That's just for the Jews. But they are not the church of the firstborn. They are not the ones who look to Christ and the Father in the New Jerusalem. We are. And it's written about the church and the nation here at the end. Both. Now, let's pick it up in 52, uh, down in verse 12, because that's where it talks about specifically the fast of the fifth month. Tenth day of the month. The month is called Av, so it's the tenth of Av. The Jews uh, keep it as the ninth of Av. For whatever reason, some gray-beard rabbi thought they decided to keep it on the ninth. And yet, here in Jeremiah, it says it is the tenth. If you go back to Kings, it talks about some of this starting on the seventh, actually. Uh, but the commentaries say that's when the army showed up was the seventh. And then it actually happened on the tenth. Uh, so there's not a contradiction in the scripture. I think that's probably the way it actually was. Uh, you don't just come riding up and take it the same day. You have to get organized and ready and then do what you're going to do. And one of the fasts is about the siege that they put on there. Uh, but in the fifth month, the tenth day of the month, which was the ninth year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came Nebuzaradan, captain of the guard, which served the king of Babylon, into Jerusalem. So he came into the city on the tenth day and burned the house of the Eternal and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem and all the houses of the great men burned he with fire. And all the army of the Chaldeans that were with the captain of the guard broke down all the walls of Jerusalem round about. So this happened on the 10th, or at least began on the 10th. I don't know how many days it took them to knock all the walls down, but that's when it started. And they just burned and destroyed the whole thing. When they took Zedekiah, who was the king, uh, killed his sons in front of their eyes and then put his eyes out. That's the last thing he got to see was all his children being killed. Kind of cruel, but that's the way it was. And then the captain of the guard left some Jews there to tend uh, the vineyards and various things. He didn't take everybody to Babylon. And Jeremiah apparently was left behind as well. Now, let's bridge this with some of my thoughts that I was having the last few days and even last evening and again this morning. Uh, when I came home Thursday, or yesterday, when I got here, uh, I checked my mail, and in there was a uh, publication, the magazine that United puts out, United Church of God. And we've been, or I've, I've been getting it for many years. I didn't order it, but uh, Calvin Martin, who's up here in our cemetery, uh, had ordered it, and it comes here, and I've never canceled it because I like to just paw through it when it comes and see which of my friends have died. <laughs> there's, there's not a whole lot more there, but 
there were a lot of ministers that I knew, most of them, that were in the church uh, from way back. Uh, I was in, started college in 62, but I'd been in imperial school and going to the feast. And I knew all the old ministers uh, by face and name, and then by the time I got in college, they were my professors, and I knew them all personally. And when I graduated in 66, I knew nearly all the ministers in the church. Uh, after you leave college, you get out in the field ministry, those who graduate after you usually don't know very much, except that many of them were my classmates. When I was a senior, they were a freshman or a sophomore, so it carried on for a few years before I didn't know them. And then sometime in the 70s, they quit putting out quality ministers for the most part anyway. Uh, people who weren't grounded and didn't know, and, and some of them finally rebelled, even some of the older ones. But I knew a lot of those people, and if I go through the magazines of the splinter groups that survived the death of Worldwide, uh, I knew a lot of the names, knew most of the leaders, if not all of them, and uh, many of those who were subordinate to them. But it just hit me when I went through that one yesterday, there's hardly anyone there left that I know. There are a few, very few names of people that used to be either in charge of United or were prominent in the group, and they've either died or been voted out. And today, most of them are either dead or sitting in a wheelchair drooling on themselves. Uh, it's been a while. When you stop to think about it, Herbert Armstrong died in 86. That was 37 years ago. Now, anybody who was born from 86 on, let's say seven years, if you were seven years old, would you remember much about the church? Very little. So that's somebody who's 45 years old today had not ever heard of it. And those that were older forgot about it. It's hard to find anybody today that remembers the church. It's dead. It's gone. It's sad. And I was feeling, man, I'm one of the few left. <laughs> really. Uh, I checked to see, I, I, I went on my phone to check and see uh, about a couple. Fred Coulter's still around, but he's 89. Uh, that's nearly 90. How much is he able to do today? Still there. Jerry Flurry, I didn't, let's see, I didn't find his age that I remember, but he's up there as well, uh, probably in his late 80s. And all the old evangelists are dead. They're gone. All of them. So there's just not much left. Where does this take us? It's kind of discouraging. It was to me. All these people I knew, they're gone. Most of you... Uh, weren't around when Worldwide was still alive. You're not old enough to have known anything much about it. Some of you are ancient enough that you remember, <laughs> but not very many that are left Worldwide of the church. There's very few who can remember it that are under 50 years of age. 
I did say this would be some old men left who could compare. And that's kind of the way he put it. Well, it's getting to the point where there aren't too many of those. So, to me, my feelings were, okay, what a mess. All the other groups are having the same problem. People are dying. People are getting sick. People are falling away. People just aren't there anymore. It's a very, very sad time. And I was feeling kind of down. <laughs> and thinking, man, what's going to happen? Here we are, even our little group. we got some that are getting on up there pretty old. And some that are in pretty poor health. And how long are we going to last? I felt myself go downhill the last two or three years an awful lot. I can't do stuff I was doing three years ago. I start climbing on buildings and everything, and I think, what in the world am I doing up here? Uh, <laughs> I don't belong here anymore. My knees won't take it, or whatever. So, we're in pretty sad condition. So, as I was reading here to tell you of what it says about uh, what happened on this day, on the tenth day of the fifth month, all those years ago. Some of these things that we've read in the Scriptures came to mind. It said Jerusalem would sit uninhabited for many generations. You know, four, five, six Scriptures that say that in the Old Testament, in the prophecies. And indeed it has. But I don't think there's a hundred people probably not a hundred people, on the earth today who know where the original Jerusalem even was. They all think it's that Arab city and what became Israel in 1948 when they formed that nation. And a lot of uh, Edomites and some Jews went there, real Jews. But there are more Edomites, I think, there today than there are true blood Jews. And nobody knows where Jerusalem was. God said there'd be no people dwelling there for generations. And if you know where Zion is, and there are quite a few Mormons who know where Zion is. Uh, Brigham Young denied it at first, but he finally accepted that Zion Park is the basis of Zion. And so there are quite a few Mormons who understand that, but they don't get the fullness of it because the church itself believes that the Garden of Eden was in Missouri or Illinois there. And they all think they're going back there someday, most of them, uh, because that was the place of origin and beginning. They don't realize that it was out here. Uh, so what the true Zion really means, they don't, most of them, grasp. So Jeremiah was left behind, okay? And then he wrote, not the book of Jeremiah, but a short book that is attached at the end. After he witnessed all of this happening to the temple, to the walls, to the houses, to Zedekiah, and the people being hauled off to Babylon to become slaves, here is what he wrote. Now think of the church, its leader being 
killed probably, and the church dying as it did, and Revelation talks about Sardis that died, the church that died. And what's left? That's what I've kind of been describing here. Most of the people I knew that were in it are dead. Most of the ones I went to school with or knew that had already been there. They're dead. They're gone. The church pretty much died when Herbert Armstrong died. You didn't recognize it shortly thereafter. It was just gone. Doctrines changed. Leadership changed. Moved out of Pasadena. Sold everything they could. And it died. Now, that's the way Jeremiah was feeling when he saw Jerusalem die and everything not flat. And here's what he wrote. Lamentations of Jeremiah. And when I started reading through this, I began to realize, man alive, these are pretty much my feelings these days. Let's see what he says. How does the city sit solitary that was full of people? Now, we're come to Jerusalem, right? Hebrews 12. The city of Jerusalem. The church is a symbol of Jerusalem. Not the new one quite yet, but the old one. The new one we anticipate. We're members of that. But we were also members of the one that has died and disappeared, and we're just sort of sitting out here as pieces of vomit from what Christ spewed out of his mouth. What he says in Jeremiah is very similar to what you and I have experienced. How does the, let's put it this way, how does the church sit solitary that was full of people? How has she become as a widow? She that was great among the nations or peoples and princes among the provinces, how has she become tributary? Worldwide, it even reached the point where its leadership knew a lot of the leaders of the nations of the world. Went to visit them, took them gifts, had dinner with them. Herbert Armstrong was all over the world talking to different leaders of the nations. How did that just go away? It was there. I experienced it. I saw it. I was in Miami pastoring that little church, and he came through. He and Debar a party. I think they'd been down in the Caribbean, and uh, invited me as church pastor, my family, my wife, to come and have dinner with them in Miami. And Mr. Armstrong brought this nice piece of Waterford crystal, that's expensive stuff, that he had bought for a king of a nation and wanted to show it to me. But he was on his way to, to give it to this king, or president, whatever. How has she disappeared? She weeps sore in the night, and her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. Everybody just disappeared. And all her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They are become her enemies. You don't have to look at the church as a whole to see and understand what Jeremiah is saying here. You only got to look at this little group right here. It's enough of an example. People who were our friends, 
our brothers and sisters here, now are our enemies. They have made themselves and declared themselves enemies, have lawsuits going, and have been trying to steal our land, and so on and so on. You know the story. Judah, and that is, uh, Paul told us there in Galatians, that Judah and Israel are the mother of us all, of the New Testament church. So when it speaks of Judah, it's speaking of the church, spiritual Judah. We're spiritual Jews uh, of Christ who was physically a Jew. Judah's gone into captivity because of affliction and because of great servitude she dwells among the heathen. So here we are scattered across the nation, scattered across the land, basically unknown and living shoulder to shoulder with all kinds of Protestants and others and the nation also has to come into play here. I've been telling you for many years that the church would fall apart first and be destroyed, and then the nation of Israel would be destroyed. And now suddenly we're taken over by transgenders and drag queens, and oh mercy, we are headed for the toilet. That's too clean. We're headed for the outhouse. It's Awful what's happening in this country today. Sodom and Gomorrah. So think of it as the church that this has happened to, as Jeremiah was lamenting it, and of our nation that we're living in today, and it is happening to it right now. It's started and it's getting worse and worse by the day. All her persecutors overtook her between the lines. The ways of Zion, the church, do mourn, because none come to the solemn feast. People have fallen away, people have died, organizations have fallen apart, not too many even come to the feast anymore. All her gates are desolate, her priests sigh, her virgins are afflicted, and she is in bitterness. And I found myself kind of in a sighing mode or mood the last few days just because some of these things were hitting me. And then in reading that this morning, I said, well, got to go there. Got to read Zephaniah. Uh, it describes where we are. Her adversaries are the chief. Her enemies prosper. Our enemies right here are... Uh, now in pretty much possession of the land they live on, and they're very soon going to get full possession. Uh, we've got to get this surveyed, and we have to pay for part of it, what they call our share. And it's going to be fairly expensive, but either that or the judge is simply going to uh, throw it all out and throw everything out and have it subdivided, the whole thing, uh, and given away or declare that it has to be sold. So if we help with the survey, then uh, each will of our enemies will receive their acre. And they will have accomplished stealing land that I believe is dedicated to God. 
Now, I also believe from Scripture that they are going to be cast out, and they won't be here to enjoy it. Uh, they're going to be gone, because this is God, God's land, this land He gave us here near Zion to become a foothold for what He is about to do whenever He decides to do it. So it isn't all gloom and doom, but it isn't real pretty at the moment. Let's put it that way. Uh, her enemies prosper, for the Eternal has afflicted her. You can't blame this on anybody but God afflicting us because of what we were or are. God says He has afflicted her. You'll see that over and over and over in this short book. For the multitude of her transgressions, her children are gone into captivity before the enemy. Where are our children today? Most of them are out in the world, just living in the world, doing worldly things. Their friends, their neighbors, their business is with the world, not with the church. Most of them are gone. A few are still around, but not very many. And from the daughter of Zion, all her beauty is departed. Remember all those fine buildings we had and jet planes and all that? All gone. Spiritually, same story. There's not much true spirituality left in the church today. Only a few. God says only 10%. When He calls, and stirs, only 10% will come. That's pretty sad, isn't it? What if you ran a baseball team, and you had 25 players, like Major League uh, teams have, and you said, well, we got a ball game today. <clears throat> we got to go play this other team. All of you show up at 2 o'clock. That would be 2.5 people that would show up to play, not 25. A tenth. That's the way God says it's going to be with the church. He's going to say, let's build a temple. Let's build the walls of Jerusalem. Ten percent of what was or remains is all that will show up. That's all. Her beauty is departed. Her princes... Ministers are become like hearts that find no pasture, and they are gone without strength before the pursuer. There's no power. There's no strength in the church anymore. Nothing's being accomplished. Living, Philadelphia, United, they're not accomplishing anything. They try to build it up that they are, but in truth they aren't. There's not much going on. They're not growing. We're without strength before those who are trying to destroy. And that's Satan and his demons. And increasingly, our own government in this nation are beginning to come down on Christians. If you're a Christian, in some cases they'll put you in jail just for being there or saying Jesus Christ. You can curse God and be blessed in this nation. But to say you're following Christ in the church, they're going to put us to death for that. Christ said there in Matthew 24 that there would come earthquakes and famines and wars and rumors of wars. 
and then they will kill you. That's primarily true members of the church. That's not just Methodists and Baptists and Mormons. The ones they'll really be after, the ones Satan can't stand, are the ones that truly worship God, who understand who He is. He wants them all dead. And in the tribulation that is about to come, about nine-tenths of them will be killed. Some will repent before they die. Zechariah indicates about a third, maybe. And that's it. Plus the 10% that show up to build the temple. Well, pretty sad. Jerusalem remembered in the days of her affliction and of her miseries all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old. We can look at the church and what it had and say, boy, it was prosperous and wonderful and growing and people were excited and they came to the feast and it's all kind of stopped. When her people fell into the hand of the enemy and none did help her, the adversaries saw her and did mock at her Sabbath. The Pekachas were adversaries. They hated the church in the form that it was in. And as soon as they took over, they began to change all the doctrines and went back to Sunday keeping and mocked our Sabbaths. This is, this is real life stuff, brethren. It's real life. It happened to us. Some of you can't remember it, but I certainly do. And some of you are old enough to remember it. Uh, let's see, where am I now? Verse 8, Jerusalem has grievously sinned. The church has grievously sinned. Therefore she is removed, gone, removed. All that honored her despise her. You can get on the internet and read about worldwide and you can find an awful lot of hate in there. An awful lot of uh, derision. Because they have seen her nakedness, yea, she sighs and turns backward. Her filthiness is in her skirts, spiritual adultery with the world. She remembers not her last end. Therefore, she came down terribly, wonderfully. She has no comforter. <clears throat> the Spirit of God has pretty much departed from those who were the church years ago. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has magnified himself. Now, as we read this, remember, Jeremiah had just seen the temple destroyed, all the ornaments hauled off, had seen all the houses burned, had seen the walls knocked down, and there was nothing left. And this is what he saw in the feelings that he had. Some of the same feelings we have been dealing with and still have because it's still not flat. Hasn't been raised up yet. <clears throat> so he says, Behold my affliction. Uh, verse 10, The adversary has spread out his hand upon all her pleasant things, for she has seen that the heathen entered into her sanctuary whom you did command that they should not enter into your congregation. Herbert Armstrong had named that beautiful building. One of the most beautiful buildings on earth. 
of any modern consequence. He called it uh, the house of, for the great God, something similar to that. House of the great God. And the heathen entered in, and they took it over. And the church no longer has it. I don't know whether they've torn it down yet or not. They may have. All her people sigh. They seek bread. They've given their pleasant things for food to relieve the soul. Remember, Christ is the bread of life. And people who are still trying to follow Him are having difficulty in so doing. It's hard to find the bread of life. He's become scarce. He turned his face from us, he said in many scriptures. See, O Lord, and consider, for I am become vile. Jeremiah said, it's all torn down. They've gone into captivity. Uh, there's only a few of us left here. And he was feeling really down. Look at the feeling and the tenor and the attitude that he was suffering with and trying to deal with and wrote down. <coughs> Is it nothing to you, all you that pass by? It's no big deal to you. The worldwide what? Uh, and yet here he was suffering. Behold and see if there be any sorrow like to my sorrow. Similar to what Christ said which is done to me, wherewith the Lord has afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. Jeremiah was a prophet of God, and he had told Israel what was going to happen to them as a result of their sins. And now it had happened, and he was going back over it and suffering through it, just as we are suffering through what happened to the church. It's a mockery today. Anybody that remembers it mocks it and says, what happened to that? Where's their God? We have people right here on this property that say the same things about us. They mock me. That's okay. It isn't fun, but it's okay. I know what I know. They don't know what they don't know. But they're going to find out. For above has he sent fire into my bones, and it prevails against them. He has spread a net for my feet. He has turned me back. He has made me desolate and faint all the day. Now, Jeremiah was a prophet of God, whom God used a great deal. and used to write both the book of Jeremiah and Lamentation to us. But just because he had been used of God in a great way didn't mean that he didn't feel and go through the same things that everybody else was. Jeremiah was special to God. And yet, he suffered right through it all. He took it personal. I am vile. God, prompt, God did this to us because of our sins and my sins, he says. I'm vile. We have to look at it that way. God didn't just spit out the church and put us in the condition we're in and have us, any of us, impervious to it. It happened to all of us. 
great and small, from evangelist down to the smallest member, if you might put it that way. But Jeremiah was feeling it himself very strongly. The yoke of my transgressions is bound by his hand, God's. They are wreathed and come up, up upon my neck. I've got grief up to here, he says. God has just wrapped me in it. He has made my strength to fall. The Lord has delivered me into their hands from whom I am not able to rise up. Babylonians had taken over, taken most people into captivity, left a few behind, and there was no way to rise above that. And he had been instructed to tell the people that it was a long captivity. Seventy years, he said. So he told them, when you get to Babylon, go ahead and build houses and have kids. You're going to be there a long time. And there was another prophet, Hanamiel, I forget his name, uh, who told them it would be a short captivity and they'd be all back home and everything would be nice and good and easy. And God caused him to die. <laughs> Jeremiah was correct. It's going to be a long captivity. Uh, verse 15, The Lord has trodden underfoot all my mighty men in the midst of me. He has called an assembly again against me to crush my young men. The Eternal has trodden the virgin, the daughter of Judah, as in a winepress. So, Zion, Jerusalem, virgin, uh, God refers to as it was Israel, and later the church, been stomped like grapes. For these things I weep, my eye, my eye runs down with water, because the comforter that should relieve my soul is far from me. The Spirit of God is mostly departed from the church, and you have to struggle to find God. I was just thinking, you know, I still have prayers that are answered. He often gives me topics for sermons just right out of the blue. I'll pray about it, and there it is. And during a sermon, he will cause me to say things that I've never even thought of before that's in the Scripture. To me, it is amazing. It may not be to you, because you don't know that. But to me, I'm just absolutely amazed at some of the things that come out of my mouth that I've never even thought of. And there it was, something in the Scripture sparked it. And it came out right. So, it's not that he's completely gone, because I feel a certain amount of inspiration from him, and I thank him for it. But at the same time, it's very, very difficult for us to have prevailing, meaningful, deep prayers that are close to God because He has withdrawn to a great degree. And He only answers in part with some of us who are struggling to truly obey Him in spite of everything that's happened. Now, don't think He isn't watching don't think he isn't aware of who's struggling to go ahead and obey him. He is very aware. And he numbers the hairs of our heads, but he doesn't give us many answers yet. Now, he said that he will. 
but he has not yet. So what do we do? We do what we heard in the Bible study. We move forward in faith, in trust, in belief, in these scriptures, the Word of God, because he says he's going to turn it around and bless. But until he does, we ain't got no cookies. We don't have much. But we wait in faith. Now that's what Jeremiah had to do too. And he'll, if I get to it today, he'll mention that. He'll back up what I just said. I doubt we'll get that far. For these things I weep. My eye runs down with water because the comforter that should relieve my soul is far from me. Christ sent the comforter, the Holy Spirit. And it is hard to receive much of that today. He says there in Joel, you remember, that he will pour out his spirit at some point. But in the meantime, you just get a little dribble. <laughs> so we struggle. We're going through exactly what Jeremiah was going through and what he said. So if you feel yourself going through this, you're in good company. Jeremiah the prophet. Because he says this is the way it would be when the church came apart at the end. We've come to the church of the living God which is in terrible shape. I, I remember somebody, I think it was in the late 70s, I remember who. He says, if there's one thing I know, this is the church of God. <laughs> Pretty well sums it up. This is the church of God. Then he began to cry. I mean, it was a joke. But it was the truth. That's why it was a good joke. It was the truth. And today, you look at it and say, the church of God is almost gone. There's just a few who cling to the truth. It's a sad, sad situation. So Jeremiah said, I'm weeping. I'm crying. The comfort that should relieve my soul is far from me. Hard to find God under these circumstances. He says, seek Him, seek Him, and find Him. He says, if you come and seek me, I will be found of you. That's said in Jeremiah, about 33 or 34, wherever it is. My children are desolate because the enemy prevailed. The Tkachas prevailed over Armstrong. Uh, in some respects, our enemies here have prevailed over us. God has allowed it. And we're suffering as a result of it. Same thing, same story, wherever you look. It's all the same. Zion spreads forth her hands, and there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded concerning Jacob that his adversaries should be round about him. Now, you can go back in Isaiah, and it talks about Jacob. Uh, that you worm Jacob, it says. And then it talks about how he will bless Jacob, but not until he goes through some stuff. And he turns his face against Jacob. 
Jacob represents all of Israel. So he says, they'll be all around you and basically they will have won. Raider and Takash are dead, but they won. Jerusalem is as a menstruous woman among them. That isn't the kind of woman you look for. She's kind of, in those days, outside the camp. Of no use to anybody, and even actually put out of the camp. Because they were not to be approached during that period of time. And therefore were out of function. God made it that way. And he says, that's the way Israel is. That's the way the church is today. Kind of been put out of the camp during that period of time. And it goes on and on with us. The Eternal is righteous, for I have rebelled against His commandment. Hear, I pray you, all people, and behold my sorrow. My virgins and my young men are gone into captivity. They hauled them off. Our young people have been hauled off into Babylon for the most part. They're marrying outside the church. They're doing all kinds of things and forgetting their roots, forgetting where they came from, forgetting the Scriptures. I called for my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and my elders gave up the ghosts in the city. The ministry's all dying off. Or they were killed in the taking over of the city. While they sought their food to relieve their souls, they died up, died, gave up the ghost, starved to death, or were killed. Behold, O Eternal, for I am in distress. My bowels are troubled. My heart is turned within me, for I have grievously rebelled. Didn't we all? Didn't we grievously rebel in a lot of ways? We wanted spiritually to serve God. But we turned and did the things we wanted to do or felt like doing or things that might bring pleasure to us or whatever. And God was not central in our lives anymore. He wasn't the key figure in our lives. We were the key figure doing our thing. That's why I gave the sermon about the Sabbath. It's His thing and we're to keep it the way He wants it kept to remember Him and to make Him the focus of our lives. And the Sabbath is there so that we are to do nothing, really, but focus on Him. That's the point. But we rebelled against that and weren't keeping it that way. Verse 20, Behold, O Eternal, for I am in distress, Bowels are troubled. I guess I read that. Yeah, grievous rebelled. Uh, the sword bereaves at home, and there is as death. Now, I'll tell you right now, we're reading history of the church today, and we're reading prophecy of our nation. What you and I have experienced and gone through and are still going through is what is about to be turned loose on this nation in the same way. It's going to all be knocked down and burned and destroyed. 
as Jerusalem was. They have heard that I sigh. There is none to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You think these nations around our country today aren't making us a laughing stop with bumbling Joe, Tommy Biden? Tommy Joe and the hoe is what I call them. And that's what they are. And he hasn't even got a brain left. Did you see that dead, that little two-year-old girl when he was nibbling at her like a billy goat does the rear end of the nanny goat? That's just abominable. And he's the soul, supposedly the leader of our nation. But the nations around the world know better than that. They know he's a bumbling fool. They know he's being manipulated by people behind the scenes. But we're a laughing stock already. And we haven't been even invaded yet. Think this isn't coming on our country? Oh my. Maybe I should give our leaders more respect, according to some scriptures that indicate respecting those who are in positions of authority. But how do you respect someone without a brain and what is left of it is absolutely a perverted pedophile? And yet they leave him in office. They're okaying pedophilia in some states today. They're saying it's legal. But it's okay. Seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve-year-old boys and girls, and you can molest them, and it isn't even against the law in some places anymore. How sick can you get? You think God isn't sick of it? We're killing babies by the millions, just murdering them in abortions, and even after birth deaths. God is sick of it, and He's about to bring it down. Now, we've experienced it in the church, and we know how awful it is on just a spiritual level. I say just. But what's it going to be like when all these people that you see in St. George and Chicago are going through the same thing? And it's coming and coming fast now. That thing in Russia and Ukraine with NATO and the U.S. punching the bag is getting more and more dire every day. And we're using up all of our ammunition and our war machines and we'll have nothing left when they do decide to come in and take over. They're playing a game. Do we get it? Ukraine is all a game. Russia could go in there and crush them almost overnight. Except for our support, which makes it a little tougher. But they're waiting until America is on her knees. Jeremiah 50 and 51 tell us, civil war is coming, rulers killing rulers, and they're already talking about it today, some of the senators. So-and-so needs killed. All Christians need killed, senators will say. We're getting in the point where we're going to be in civil war and we will 
I mean, they take down the electrical grid or most of it or some such thing, and three days later, people are killing each other, left and right. They can do that. But they want us absolutely weakened to the point they can come in. They don't need nuclear bombs. Russia could do that to us over, I say overnight, in a minute. They don't want to. China doesn't want to. They want this land to colonize. They don't want a nuclear winter for a hundred years. They want our land, and they want us dead. That's what they're working on. And it says right there in Jeremiah as well that our leaders would give their hand. We'll make a deal with them to sell out our country. And if you can't see how we're selling our government and our defense department are selling out our land today, you ain't got a brain. You've got something that can read screens, and that's it. <laughs> if you can't see this, most people don't have a clue. If I only had a brain. We're not in Kansas anymore, <laughs> referring to the movie. I've grievously rebelled. Abroad the sword uh, bereaves, at home there is as death. It's exactly where our country is headed. We're reading it just a little ahead of time. They have heard that I sigh, verse 21. There is none to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. God did it to the church, spewed it out. He's going to do it to the nation and set up the Assyrian to come in and destroy us. That's being done as we speak. The mark of the beast is working very rapidly now to scan our eyeballs and to have a digital uh, identification for everyone on earth. There's a company who's expressed that as their goal, is to get it all done. They're working on it. They're working on the money to use, the mark of the beast, so you can't buy and sell without it. Your money, your gold, none of it. Just their little chip, hand or forehead. That's it. It's coming fast. They will bring the day that you have called, and they shall be like me. Sad, broke frustrated, angry. Let all their wickedness come before you and do to them as you have done to me for all my transgressions. For my sighs are many and my heart is faint. Now there's Jeremiah, the prophet of God, who had been instructed what to tell Israel and Judah and had gone and done just that and then he was in the middle of it when it happened. So he was not uh, saved from it. He went right into it. And notice here that he takes it personal. He says, it's what I've done. All of this destruction came because of me. You will not find very many in the church of God who have the attitude that Jeremiah had. 
they prefer, 99% of them, to claim they are Philadelphian and everybody else is the one that this came for and because of. The Laodiceans. Well, if I got stewed, and here I am, a little piece, then it's on me, isn't it? He was repenting. He recognized his own sin and sought God in it. And that's exactly where we are now, and most who were of the church are blaming someone else that they call the Laodiceans because they're the good guy. I'm the Philadelphian, and it's all their fault. And as I've said many times, nobody repents because nobody accepts responsibility. Only a very few, which is going to amount to a tenth. And that's all. Will ultimately accept responsibility for what's happened to the church. And the same of our nation. We're going to blame somebody else. It's George Bush's fault, or it's Obama's fault, or Biden's fault, or Pelosi's fault, or some of our familiar targets today. It's not their fault. It's the fault of the people of America who are the ones who are breaking the Sabbath and lying and cheating and stealing and adulterating and fornicating and breaking every law that God gave. That's who's responsible. Those are the ones that need to repent. It's not just the leaders. All the leaders are is people who got popular enough to get voted into office and they're just like the people who voted them in, basically. Only now they have money and power and can maybe do more sin quicker. That's the only difference. Human nature is the same everywhere. And our nation is full of liars and thieves and Sabbath breakers and ungodly and increasingly not even claiming any kind of Christianity. So it's not, you can't just blame it on the leaders. You've got to blame it on us as a people. We as a people in America are ungodly in almost every way. And the church became that too. So we have to accept personal responsibility. Do as Jeremiah did. I am the one that's responsible, he said. I didn't serve God in the way that I really should have. And yet he was one of the best at doing that. But he recognized his own faults. And he repented personally of that. And you're seeing it right here. And the only way out of this is to do as Jeremiah did. To accept it as our personal responsibility and do everything we can to fix the relationship between us and God. You're the only one that can fix it between you and God. Nobody can do, do it for you, and you can't do it for anybody else. <coughs> it's a personal responsibility, and Jeremiah took that on himself. Go thou, and do likewise.